You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Bach Week. We continue the conversation today. I'm looking forward to this because we're going to dig into Bach as composer. Yes. Uh, And what does this mean? Because that's a good Lutheran question to ask as well. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, Dr. Maurice Boyer, professor of music at Concordia University, Chicago, and music director of the American Contrai. Dr. Boyer, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Thank you, Andy. Bach as composer fits ever so nicely into our series this week for Bach Week. Let's dig into his, let's start with his style. What was his Bach's musical style and how did that compare to other composers of his time? Well, I th- well, first of all, I would say that's a, that's a tricky question to deal with. He was definitely considered a bit, shall we say, backward in that he was um, using older forms. The counterpoint that he was using, very dense counterpoint, uh, very complex writing, which was going through already at his time a bit of a, uh, shall we say, a simplifying. I don't mean to say to mean that pejoratively, but it was seen a little bit as old-fashioned in some regards. But that's that would be an oversimplification because one does hear him very much aware of what was going on around and adopting, for instance, and knowing exactly what was happening in other countries even. He's very fond of, of Italian composers, Vivaldi, Marcello, Scarlatti, potentially as well, and even used some of their music and, and adapted some of it for, in some of his keyboard works. So very much aware of what was going on and did, as I said, employ some of these newer ways of, of writing with a more of a melody and accompaniment rather than just always extremely dense polyphony. So I guess you would say extremely varied style. Maybe it would be the best way to qualify it. So now my Andy was right. I am going to have a million questions. <laughs> so how did how did he have influence then on the music the periods of music that we study? Because he was a Baroque right. composer, but the classical period then that started immediately after his death. Is that right? Yeah, I mean the periods, of course, are much more fluid than than the history books would lend us to believe. But well, for for certain, I mean, while he probably was to some degree forgotten, one does know that Mozart studied his his music, and later composers or, or composers around the same time. So we're talking not too after Bach died, and Mozart, born in 1856, was still aware of his works. And not just, clearly not just the keyboard works. So forgotten maybe to some degree, but not completely. So his, you know, the counterpoint that is part of his, his writing and the complex harmony that goes along with that, one hears in, in especially in, in later Mozart, one hears, definitely hears his, his deep study of Bach in his later choral works and his later symphonic works. You know, just think of the ending of the 41st symphony and you hear just a marvel of counterpoint that could not have been that it was not something that he would have written earlier in his life in terms of the the you know the later the later periods too i mean mendelssohn is the one who's credited with really re- a bach revival 
you know, in 1829 with his performance in St. Matthew Passion, not in its entirety, if memory serves, and in Leipzig, because he also was active in Leipzig. From then on, I mean, one does know that his, that he was studied by all the great composers, you know, Brahms, for sure, when here's the influence. And really from there on, I mean, Mahler, 20th century too, of course. Does that sort of give a, a little hint of an answer to that question? Yeah, yeah. I just when Luther and I are listening to classical music in the car, I'm always like quizzing him on on where the the piece and the composer fits into musical history periods. Because it, it's a very interesting thing, maybe level up on on the nerd level, but it's it's interesting for me to to kind of understand where the the influence of of that specific work, the, the influences that that person would have had, and and all of those things. So yeah, that that is yeah. that is helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, since I wasn't around at the time of Bach, how does one get a composing gig? Like, oh. how, like today, you might be an independent contractor, maybe you're commissioned to write a piece, or maybe this is just you're an artist and so this is what you do, and you're ever so fortunate to, you know, get a contract with someone to, to be writing music or selling your music. How did, what was the vocation of, of composer? At that time, how did he end up composing? Who was he composing for? Well, how about if I answer very specifically for Bach and rather than in general, how one would have sure. a job? Well, Bach was definitely mainly a, a church composer, although he did work for the court in, in Kürten, which actually was a Calvinist court for a few years. He, yeah, he was mainly a church composer. And for that, you know, it's a position was open. You would apply for it. It's essentially what happened in in later on in his life, he, I mean, he really, his first position was when he was rather young, 20, 22, I would guess. Mm -hmm. And then from there, he had several positions until he gets to Leipzig in 1723. And for that one, he, he was among three candidates who applied for it. And amazingly, he was, he was not the top choice. He was the third. And so two others declined. And then finally he, he received the position. So really in his case, a job was open. He applied for it and eventually got it. So it's in some ways a rather, I mean, I would say it's, it's a simple process, you know, opening, apply and find yourself working there. And in terms of who was, for whom he was writing, maybe that'll be a question that comes up a little bit later in our conversation. So what kinds of should we talk about today with, with Bach? I know you have a few in mind that, that you want us to cover. So where do you want to start with the, the music that he composed? Well, I guess I'll say, I mean, in general, everyone knows just, just the wide array of pieces that he wrote. I mean, the most familiar ones are, of course, the, probably the Brandenburg concertos and the, the orchestral suites and the, and the partitas or the well-tempered clavier. The instrumental works and as and the B minor mass probably and the big passions. I would I would say that one of the most intriguing places to start with Bach's works would be the indeed the sacred vocal pieces, but perhaps even the the cantatas, which would really give an idea of what his daily life would have been. So again, one gets close to him at the same time. Since he was writing for the church, he was every week writing a cantata, sometimes even several at a time depending on what the needs were, you know, say for Christmas, you know, you have the Christmas day. And then of course, you know, the few days after Christmas successively for all the high feasts, you would have that. So I think the cantatas are, are a great way to start. And 
I was thinking specifically of the chorale cantatas because that's the center of the, it's always something that he uses in his cantatas. And of course, the, these chorales would have been sung by the congregations that have been familiar for them to them. And, and the chorale cantata is an intriguing thing, again, because it brings it, I think, closer to all of us as, as churchgoers. You know, we know at least some of these chorales, not all of them have been translated into English, but it brings, I think, the pieces even closer to us. So the chorale cantata, I think is a great place to, to start. Writing or composing for basically every Sunday. Mm -hmm. This is basically, you're basically doing the same work that a pastor is doing in essence that, I mean, if a pastor is writing a sermon for every Sunday, mm -hmm. doing all the same like yeah. exegesis and, and reviewing the texts and mm -hmm. writing a composition, Yes. This is, I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective, how deeply theological, mm -hmm. how much study would, would be a part of this would, yes. would, and this is, pardon my ignorance here, would Bach have been regarded as, as Cantor or Cantor? Yes. In yes. I mean, they would call him Kapellmeister, but yes, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, essentially the same kind of function. Yes. We have been providing music for t the two main churches in Leipzig, the Thomas Church and the and the Nikolai Church. And so his pieces would have been performed in alternation in each of those places. Don't necessarily need to deal with the details of that. But and he would super have supervised music in all the other churches in Leipzig. So huge responsibility, of course. Yeah. So every week, for sure. I mean, dealing with I mean the libretto of the cantata that would have been connected with the gospel of the day. Is it almost always a, you know, almost like a sermon in song, right? In working in parallel with the text and hopefully also with the, with what the pastor will have been or would be talking about or speaking about in his, in his sermon. So, yeah, I mean, a real, yeah, I mean, it's almost, you're right, the, the job of, of what a pastor would be doing, sort of really contributing to the, the understanding of one's devotional life and walk as a Christian. So would you like to look at one of these compositions, particularly that, that follow the church, church year that he would have composed specifically for a specific Sunday in the church year? Sure. And before that, let me just say a couple of things about, again, about Bach's view of music, which is really quite illuminating. We don't really have very much from him. He didn't, he didn't write about what he did all that much, but we do have some, a few words that are really illuminating in it. In his Bible, and he, by way of aside, he had a rather substantial theological library, which again shows just how seriously he took this and how much a part of his life it was for a, a lay person to have 150 volumes of, theolo of theological works in your, in your library at that time is, is astonishing. In any case, in his Bible, and by the way, the seminary in St. Louis has his original, his own Bible, which is amazing. I've spent quality time looking through and leafing through that, that Bible, which has a few of his annotations. And there's one in Chronicles, Second Chronicles 5, and the verse is how the glory of the Lord appeared upon the beautiful music. And then Bach has a little note in the margin there, which is incredibly beautiful, where he says, where there is devotional music, God with his grace is always present. And it's a, that captures everything right there. And one of the things I think is very particularly beautiful about that, too, is not just he said God is present, you know, God is present, he said God, is, God with his grace is always present. So the, 
the cantata itself is also seen, or the vocal work, whether it's a motet or a passion or a cantata, was seen very much as as gospel, as good news for the for the the congregant and those who are in attendance. So. That having been said, I think it's, yes, we can delve briefly into a couple of these works here. And that in just a moment, let's, we'll we'll do that in just a moment. Let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. And then we'll take a look at a couple of these pieces from the contour or Kapellmeister. 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 (laughs) Our guest today, Dr. Maurice Boyer, professor of music at Concordia University, Chicago, and music director of the American Contrai. We'll continue the conversation for Bach Week right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Eddie Bates. I'm Sarah Golsack. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others. To live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world. To live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Eddie Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Bach Week, and we are digging into the life of Bach as composer. Our guest today, Dr. Maurice Boyer, professor of music at Concordia University, Chicago, and music director of the American Contrai. All right, before we went to break, we were just getting ready to take a look at a few pieces. Dr. Boyer, what would you like to start with? Well, I thought I'd just start with a piece that would have been for, in that time, they called it the sixth Sunday after Trinity. They related the, the church year to Trinity. We would say after Pentecost, so it would be the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. And the cantata is BWV 9, which is Sishon unto us has come. So, es ist das Heil uns kommen. And here, and I would recommend to the to our listeners that they go seek this out online. And I think we will be providing some information about these. So this is BWV 9. Es ist das Heil uns kommen hier. And it's a marvelous opening movement. And if one listens to this, one will hear the tune. And I selected this not only because because of its musical beauty and because it's a chorale tune, but because also it will have just been, it will be related and it will be close to what we have just been dealing with within the church here, right? So it's just a little while ago, just a couple of weeks ago that this would have occurred. So it's kind of related to where we are in the church here. And of course, as you probably know, I'll, I'll just read the translation in the German here. So salvation to us has come from grace and pure goodness. Good deeds no longer help us. They cannot protect us. Faith looks to Jesus Christ, who has done enough for us all. He has become the media. And what's always rich, I think, when one deals with these cantatas is not just to to listen to them by themselves, which is fine too, but to relate them to what the gospel reading would have been that day. And so that would, that's something I would recommend. And for that, it would have been the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20 to 26. And I would recommend that, that people start with that, read the gospel, and then open up the cantata on your, in YouTube, have a listen, and if possible, avail yourselves of the text, because that's so crucial. Just hearing how it is that Bob weaves in and out of the chorale melody. 
The choral melody in this cantata will be heard in long note values in the soprano. And around that, all the other voices will be moving along in polyphony. Uh, so imitative polyphony, non-imitative polyphony. The orchestration is quite delicate. Strings, one flute, one oboe, and it's an incredibly joyful, joyful piece. Very dance-like, I guess you might say. And in this cantata, what we'll, one will hear is in the opening movement, the chorale melody, as I said, in long note values. One will hear it at the end of the cantata as well as a, just a straight four-part harmony, almost like straight out of the hymnal. And again, here the, the simplicity of that ending would enable the listener to almost be able to sing along, maybe not outwardly, but at least inwardly. In the middle, all the arias and restatives are essentially paraphrases of the, the other verses of the chorale, the text, that is. One won't hear so much the, uh, the chorale melody itself very much, but maybe hinted at occasionally, but the paraphrase is what occurs in between. That's a fairly typical model for the, for the chorale cantata, although not only is it that way. So I highly recommend listening to this piece, again, because of its placement within the church year. Do we know how similar the chorale text is to the text that we have in our hymnal? Yeah. Is, does it track pretty much the same? It does. It does. Yeah. I mean, so for the outer verses, you know, the first verse right. and then the final chorale. Mm -hmm. The thing that is interesting and would be interesting, and I always find this fascinating, is to look at the, at the original text in German and see if you can find a, a, a literal translation. And these are readily available online. You can just do a search. And then open the hymnal and put them side by side. If you speak German, great, then you can really see how they compare. If you're not quite sure, you can at least compare the, trend, the, the two English versions. And they're always illuminating, actually. This, the, the, the hymnal versions are, all, are meant to be sung, and the literal translations would not work as a sung translation. Um, but again, here, the, the differences are some, sometimes quite striking. I actually have talked to a fellow colleague at, at Concordia, here in River Forest about retranslating some of these together. We have this little idea. We'll see if that, if we're able to follow through with that, but it might be an interesting thing to experience these texts in some ways afresh. I would love to see that for one. So I really hope, I hope that that happens mm -hmm. someday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, is there, is there another, another cantata you want us to look at? Yes, just very briefly, I thought I'd mention another one. Again, the, the reason I chose these is that they're very familiar tunes. The other one would be from a little earlier, just a, a couple weeks earlier, and this is Cantata 93. And the, the in German, it's Wer nur den lieben Gott lässt walten. And in English, in the hymnal, it would be If thou wilt trust in God to guide thee. And so... Everyone's familiar with the tune. And what I would recommend here also is listening to is reading the gospel text that would have been associated with that day, which would be Peter's great cash fish from the gospel according to St. Luke. So Luke 5, 1 through 11. And then subsequent to that, read, listen to the cantata. And in this case, one of the things that's interesting is, unlike the other chorale cantata, in this case, one does hear the chorale melody throughout. Uh, it it even just as a hint, in some, in one verse, one hears the chorale melody played by the, the the upper strings by the violins. So it's wordlessly in the background. In other cases, it'll be just a line lifted from the 
from the corral, from the corral text. Again, ways of grabbing onto the text and one sees also the, the variety of compositional method here that Bach uses throughout. The opening verse, as I said, is, is the chorale text and melody verbatim. And again, the chorale declaimed in longer note values by the upper voices. By the way, of aside, I, by way of aside, I should say also that typically that is the format. So a polyphonic texture, and the soprano part will be singing the chorale melody in long note values in musical terms, when say in augmentation. But that's not always the case. There are some chorales or chorale cantatas where the melody will shift to an inner voice, to the alto voice, or to the tenor voice, or to the bass voice. Less frequently, but that's an also, also another thing that's intriguing. And with this cantata, one ends again also with a straight four-part chorale at the end. So those are two, just another, another, another couple of pieces, or another piece that would be of value to listen to. The last one I thought I'd men mention, and this would be looking ahead a little bit in the church here, would be just a few weeks from now, toward the end of August, would be BWV 137, so Lobe den Herrn, den mächtigen König der Ehren. So for that, obviously, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. So BWV 137. And contrary to the one to 93, which is very soft, very subtle, this one is exuberant. And get the full three trumpets, timpani, oboes, pulls out all the stops for this one. And in this case, the interesting thing is that the text of the chorale is heard verbatim the whole way through. So in this case, we don't get paraphrases of the verses when he, one hears the the text in its entirety, verbatim, from beginning to end. So each of the verses is called in chorale cantata, for obvious reasons, all verses of the chorale cantata. So again, a different mold. One sees, again, Bach experimenting with the form and never repeating himself. Again, it's a, a chorale cantata that will be immediate to the listener. And that is a very, very famous a chorale tune. And the, the interesting thing would be just to like, as we spoke, as we said a few minutes ago, Sarah, holding the, the hymnal version of the text and the, the literal translation side by side would be illuminating to the, to the listeners. In this case, the, the, the biblical text for the day would have been the healing of a deaf mute from Mark 7, 31 through 7. As always, I would keep suggesting to all our listeners to, to never disconnect the chorale from the the liturgical setting in which it would have been performed, because that is always crucial. Sometimes the, the connection is pretty tenuous. I mean, even that's, the, that's an interesting thing, too, in and of itself. But very often, it would have a rather intimate connection to what is going on in the biblical. It's beautiful to see how, when the Word of God is at the center of something, how it transcends time. Mm -hmm. you know, beautiful music like this transcends time. Real briefly, we only have a minute, but I have a question that could last us two hours. Uh -huh. um, of course. <laughs> how, has, how has Bach's work, um, particularly compositions like these, how have they been regarded throughout history from the original audience that would have heard them maybe on Sunday morning to today? How has, how has this work been regarded throughout history? Well, we don't really know exactly how the congregants felt about his music. For some of the feet from the some of the of uh, the clergy in in Leipzig, they were deemed too complicated, too many notes. Not all. I'm not saying everyone felt that way, but some folks felt that way for sure. And as I said, the congregants one doesn't quite know. Um, 
and because they are extremely complicated, one wonders how the instrumentalists handled these pieces, especially with very little rehearsal time. Mm -hmm. After that, the, the cantatas kind of fell into, they weren't performed very much. And, and so, I mean, except for maybe for in Leipzig, where they were part of the, the services, but, and not regarded very highly from a lot, from a lot of the scholarship, certainly in the 19th century and probably early 20th century, but just deemed as the, the texts were, were offensive to some people outside the outside the faith, I think, because of their, their, some of them are difficult to apprehend and are a little, and are Baroque. They're at times uh, over the top for, for some people, using the meaning of the word Baroque very literally. And, but in recent times, people have discovered that even non-Christians have recognized just how crucial these pieces are in understanding Bach's work overall, right? So in understanding the passions even. There, one sees how he developed the passion from his work in the, in the cantatas. So they are crucial, and I think more and more are they regarded as such by Christians and non-Christians alike, which is, which is amazing and, and wonderful. Our guest today, Dr. Maurice Boyer, professor of music at Concordia University, Chicago, and music director of the American Contrari. Dr. Boyer, thank you so much for joining us for Bach Week, particularly on this day that the church commemorates J.S. Bach. Thanks for being our guest in the Coffee Hour. My great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.